Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with James Taylor Foster, Curator of Contemporary Architecture and Design at ArcDes in Stockholm. Prior to his post there, James wrote for the popular architecture website ArcDaily and co-curated the Nordic Pavilion at the 2016 Venice Architecture Biennale. He's a prolific writer whose work covers contemporary design and culture in a way that feels expanded, adventurous, and unorthodox. Reading James's work, whether it's about the architecture of cruising, the craft of Swedish video game design, or the future of the museum as we know it, you really get the feeling of being fully immersed in something immediate. And it's this kind of close looking at the present that's brought to bear on an exhibition that James recently created called Weird Sensation Feels Good the first of its kind to explore ASMR, that tingly, soothing feeling triggered by specific sounds, touch, and movement. And this exhibition that James curated, it's specifically about how ASMR has given way to new internet cultures, as well as new fields of creativity. The exhibition originally opened at Arc Des in 2020, and now it's moving to the Design Museum in London, where it's opening in May of this year. I was particularly excited to talk to James, not only because of his approach to writing and making exhibitions, but also because of the kinds of people he's worked with. His list of collaborators includes the likes of OKRM, Shumi Bose, Jack Self, Max Creasy, and Space Popular, all of whom have been guests on this podcast. So in a way, I kind of feel like I've been tracing a constellation that James himself has also drawn. We spoke via Zoom in March of 2022. I was in London and he was in Stockholm. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with James Taylor Foster. I hope you enjoy it. Okay. And I, I mean, to be honest, I, I wasn't sure how to kind of approach this conversation. So bear with me if it's a bit, I'm not your usual interviewee. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um, yeah, you're a difficult, um, figure to ping down in a lot of ways. I mean, you're, you're a curator. Yeah. And your focus, it seems to be increasingly centered on the here and the now. You're interested in virtual expression, connection and communication. And you're also interested in the emergence of new cultures and aesthetics. But you came to this through architecture. And it seems like architecture remains a base from which to explore contemporary culture, especially and almost paradoxically now, as our culture is increasingly decentered, disembodied and intangible. And I, I want to start by having you tell me about 
your relationship to architecture. I understand you studied architecture uh, as a part one and then gradually transitioned into this curatorial role. So can you, can you tell me that story? Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not an easy story for even me, having done it, to, to relate. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 I studied architecture. Um, and I, I'm very sort of, I'm, if you want to describe me as an architect, as it were, which, you know, I, I do sort of like to think that I'm within that world, but I'm a remarkably unqualified one. I, uh, I'm not a massive, like, by, by any academic standards, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, you wouldn't hire me. But I, I, I it goes, it goes very far back. I mean, I mean, I remember my, um, my grandparents telling me when I was a teenager that when I was a child, I used to draw bricks as like endless bricks, you know, like, like some sort of obsessive compulsive thing. And I was obsessed with, with, with buildings and architecture. And they said to me that I had two goals as a child. One was to either become an architect or, or to become a priest. And they sort of asked me like, why, why did you want to become a priest? And I said, well, you got a free house. <laughs> it was like the vicarage was what attracted me rather than the, uh, the lifestyle per se. Um, yeah, and I think that studying architecture became almost a, an obvious decision for me. It was a life goal. And off I went and I, I studied a, a bachelor's and I met some really interesting people through that, some very interesting ideas. Um, I'm convinced that architecture as, as an education teaches you above all a way of thinking rather than the ability to draw or the ability to do whatever. And you could say under that, that it's also essentially an education in communication, because I do not believe that architects build. In fact, it really infuriates me when, when that um, phrase is bandied around. Architects communicate through drawings, but also most importantly, through words, both verbally and written. And that was the aspect, I think, of the education to me that really, really fascinated me. That you could imagine something and almost will it into existence through communication. And so, I mean, I guess standing from the position I'm in now, there's a lot of post-rationalization you could do about, about this journey. But on the one hand, it's always been very clear to me that I want to operate within the sort of expanded field of, of architecture and design. Um, but building something is not necessarily uh, a goal for me anymore. Mm. I think it was at some point because, let's face it, architecture education, on the most part, is essentially an ego-building process. Um, it sort of convinces you that you, you should make a physical mark on the world. But I'm not entirely sure we should. I heard that you published your first book at the ripe old age of 17. Is this true? It was a book on impressionist painting? Yeah, yeah, if not early. I mean, it might have been 17. I had an amazing... Um, I remember when, when, I was at, when I was at secondary school, I really wanted to study art, art history. Uh, and it wasn't available because it was a state school, you know? I didn't go to some sort of public school where art history is a given subject. Um, and so I convinced the school to, to let me do an A-level in, in art history, being the only student. And the only, 
the only reason that they allowed that to happen is because someone called Helen Trimble, who was the sort of the head of the art department, dedicated a lot of time to me to sort of take me through that process and sort of stand behind me doing the uh, doing the A level. And I did it. You know, I remember being in the exam room, just the only one in the middle of this massive hall doing an A level in, in art history. And that I was a, that process, I became very, very interested in two figures, Michelangelo, the greatest bad gay of the early art historical world, and Monet, Claude, Claude Monet, which are two radically different figures. But I was interested, I think, with, with, with Michelangelo in how his sculptures were essentially rooms. Well, they were, well, they were sort of, they dealt with rooms in a very specific way. And also he was a kind of megalomaniacal crazy guy. Uh, and Monet, you know, I was also interested in, in one particular thing with Monet, which is the, the, the Nonfia series of the Musée de l'Orangerie, which is a space that he designed to house these murals, which you can still go and visit. And, and it's, it's an unbelievable space. It's, it's sort of almost like a James Turrell work, um, where you see these vast canvases, these vast murals mm. in this, um, these two elliptical rooms. You know, so I don't know. Yeah, but then I did, I did publish, I did publish these, uh, these little, very naive um, essays, uh, more as an exercise now. I mean, I think for me, it's like, when I was, when I was that age, the idea of publishing something was um, almost impossible to even contemplate. So I just did it myself. I think it's just important to, because the way you're speaking about this, it's very matter of fact, the way that uh, you cultivate this interest in these two particular artists. But we just have to remind ourselves that this is you as a 16-year-old and that I'm sure you get this a lot, but I just have to, I kind of have to address it again because it feels to me like an elephant in the room. Like most 16-year-olds, first of all, wouldn't take up this deep interest in artists like Michelangelo or Monet, let alone publish a book about them. Um, and I mean, you're 29 now. Looking at you, though, your hair is gray. Um, you have this kind of... Well, it's salt and pepper. It's salt I think and we pepper. <laughs> You look, and I suspect you always looked much older than you are. And the way you speak and the way you carry yourself, um, I had no idea that uh, you were the age you are. And there's a kind of, um, I think sh there was a shock for me at describing just how much you've done and how little time. <laughs> I think at the beginning of the conversation, listeners just need to be aware of that context that there's a there's a precociousness at a very young age, an interest in the world of art um, that you're bringing into your um, foray into architecture. And so in a way, it makes perfect sense um, that coming out of your bachelor's of architecture, it seems like you went right into uh, the world of criticism, of publishing, of writing. And so before then, yeah. Yeah. Can you just walk me through that trajectory? Yeah, I mean, some, something to say maybe maybe first was that yeah, that there was a there's always been a certain precociousness to to sort of the way that I follow instincts and interests, and I mean now if you want to put it mildly, it's just you'd say that I'm just kind of curious, but but that curiosity for me is always it's always important to translate that curiosity into something, like I'm I'm not particularly interested myself in just being curious, 
and, and sort of sitting with that. I want to sort of see what, what I can do around that or, or what I can, who I can collaborate with or like what might come if, if, if this strange interest that I nurture slightly, um, if it's taken a step further. And, and, and I think that obviously as, as I've become more engaged with more serious contexts uh, or I've gained more responsibility or whatever, then it becomes really hard not to lose that. But I think it's actually become a fairly critical aspect of, of the way that I practice. And I don't think personally it's changed since I was a young teenager. I, I, I can personally thread a, a very simple line from there to now. And I suppose that also starts to answer a little bit of your question. When I was studying architecture, um, the thing about the way that architecture degrees are sort of organised is that they... They're organized for, I think, a certain kind of person, which not everybody always fits into. Um, they often have quite strict syllabuses in terms of format and, and also time delivery. Now, I, I mean, I graduated with a, with, with like, with a first from, from that degree, and I also you know, won a sequence of awards for, for that kind of stuff, but I, I only spent 50% of the degree time doing the degree. Like, absolutely, I did not, it was too much time given to us. So in that time that I, rem- I remember specifically, there was a call for interns at Arc Daily. And I thought that would be fun. I can, I can do that. I've got, I've got time to sit and, and, and write stuff. And it was really sort of, I, I got the internship and it was a kind of content production thing, right? I was just sat remotely from my, from my apartment, um, doing what I was told. But in so doing also then able to sort of tap into a, like a more global, like the most global understanding of, of the architecture discipline, because that's what Arc Daily was then and, 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 and has remained for some time, is the only, let's say, media company within architecture that publishes in Mandarin, Portuguese, Spanish and English simultaneously. So it was also a complete... Um, baptism of fire into also understanding how architecture is understood in different contexts mm. and different languages. Mm. I mean, at that time, I'd never, you know, I had zero relationship to Mandarin or zero relationship to Portuguese or Spanish, but I had a relationship to, to, to English because from, from, from as early as I can remember, I've always been interested in trying to, to be a little bit better than average at English, which is actually quite hard to do, you know, it, it, writing or being able to to, to sort of um, handle a language beyond just the day to day is is a is a is a lifelong um, is a lifelong learning exercise but I started internship uh, interning as it were at, at Arc Daily very quickly I, I realized that this was uh, this was fun and I got to know all the people there very closely we became friends and then as I took the next steps I continued until I became an editor um, while also working in practice in in the Netherlands and you were working at Mekanil right exactly I was working at Meccano for a while um, with with a really interesting and diverse team of people also mainly working on let's say research um, to large-scale historical projects or public projects Mm -hmm. I kind of want to hold on um, the Arc Daily experience for a moment uh, before we move on and just try and understand 
because this this website or platform is international and wildly popular and very widely read, and, and in a way, it was you cutting your teeth as an architecture writer, but not for the kind of audience that many architects would associate with architecture writing, which is to some degree, unfortunately, quite rarefied, elitist, conceptual, or opaque and obtuse, especially when architects write about architecture. It's very hard to often make sense of what's going on. But the audience that Arc Daily is writing for is, is very popular and very general in some ways. And so what did that do to your understanding of what it meant to write about architecture? How did it change the way you wrote about the built environment? Arc Daily was started as a, a, a blog by the two Davids, David Basulto and David Asayal, um, at the dawn of Web 2.0. And the, the success of Arc Daily, in terms of its um, quantitative metrics, is sort of lost a bit to the mists of time. Uh, but it became something out of Santiago de Chile, you know, out of, let's say, not out of a European context or a North American context, but out of a place that was unexpected at the time. And from the, from the very start, I think, the David and David instilled a sense of, I don't know how you would describe it necessarily, but a sense of openness or publicness. There was, there was not, certainly when I came, of a strict understanding of rigor or what rigor meant. It was about, let's just get it out there. Let's just tell everybody. Whether it was the archive, which, you know, ultimately that's what Arc Daily was and always has been. It was an archive of projects. Not perfectly organized, not organized anywhere near to the, to the level of, of rigor that a museum's archive might be. But it was just about putting it out there and trying to show everybody that this is happening. And I think the trends that you could spot, and you probably still can, from that collection of projects are, 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 will not be relevant really for a while. We'll look back on that archive and we'll see a decade or even more than a decade of architecture being shaped around the world mm. and responding to certain situations, whether they're economic or climate related, or you can start to be able to trace certain movements um, as certain architects graduate from school and then get together and then coexist and, and develop something, whether that is in Argentina or, or in China. And that, I think, struck me. I mean, I bought into this, right, this, this, this idea. But at the same time, myself and, and Becky Quintal and, and the other teams, she was the sort of head of, head of the content across multiple languages at the time when I, when I sort of joined. We understood that we wanted to still do this, but we also wanted to do it as well as we possibly could. We wanted to try to be accessible, but also not make mistakes. And it's really, really difficult when you're publishing 50 articles a day to not make mistakes. Um, no, that was, so, the, that was the volume. Yeah, that was, that was, that was the volume, or, yeah, yeah. or even more sometimes. Um, and then translating those things and getting them out in, in Mandarin as quickly as possible, or sometimes something was written in Spanish and we went to Brazilian and then we had to translate it to English. And it was, a, it was, a, it was also, looking back, I mean, it was an incredible machine of mm. extremely dedicated people. We were all completely sort of lost we worked so much to to try to bring this and we did, never really knew who the audience was we just it was sort of like everybody and nobody mm. you know 
Um, and so off we go, sort of continuous publishing. And, and I think that ultimately uh, this for me taught me not necessarily how to, how to write. You know, I've learned how to write from diff- in different ways. But it taught me the importance of culture. It also taught me a lot about how the power of the internet, uh, the power of connectivity ca- can, can be used for good and bad. And it, I think it, looking back, it, it helps me to, it really in, has informed the way that I, I see the world, my own openness to things that I might not know about. I think it was all shaped by just being bombarded for years with with ideas, with people's imagination, you know, uh, uh, in, the form of, in the form of text and images, plans and sections. And also I imagine a much deeper understanding of how people are engaging with the writing that you're doing. Yes. I mean, I think ultimately the... Uh... Maybe, maybe not, I mean, engagement's a pretty general term, mm. but I mean, you can tell what, what takes and what doesn't, what goes viral and what doesn't what's popular and what's overlooked just with the way that our content published on the internet is, is monitored. Yeah. I mean, all I will say is I think it fueled and reinforced my intuition. Mm. Mm. And you're so immersed. You use the words trends and movements. I mean, you're writing for a platform like Arc Daily, being a, uh, a writer on the internet. When was this period? You said the beginning of Web 2.0. So what is that? Well, I think Art Bailey was founded around, I need to check this, around 2006, I think. Mm. I'm not sure the exact origins, but like I said, it's a bit misty because it started as Plataforma Architectura and then Art Daily came a bit later. But you're immersed in like this rapid acceleration of aesthetic and architectural trends and I imagine trying to to wade through that and make sense of it to parse it and this sounds like it's it's the training of a curator you to- totally totally it's a completely unorthodox training of a curator I mean I remember I would read every single email that came into my inbox and this was ridiculous amounts overwhelming amounts I would we would receive particularly a lot of Im- a lot of emails from photographers because for photographers, it was, you know, an easy way to, to, to publish some work and be seen very, very widely, which hopefully might lead to something else. No? But there were too many. I remember me and a colleague opening an email from Lowry and Guinitao uh, very early on. And it was a, a photograph of a, the first image was a photograph of a building taken through the bare concrete apartment of someone who faced that building. Um, and... I just said, this is brilliant, you know, this is brilliant in comparison to the intuition that I'm building. And then, let's say a curatorial act takes place. Then we reach out to Larian and say, we want to work with you. We want to, we want to publish your work. And, and that led to a relationship, which is still I have today with, with, with Larian, um, and who has become, I think, mm-hmm. one of the most interesting architectural photographers operating globally right now. Um, extremely, extremely um, ambitious person who wants to be in the thick of things. And, mm. and that's also something that we picked up on. But simultaneously, you know, of course, there were all sorts of debates around Arc Daily. I would get attacked on online. Arc Daily would get attacked online. People felt, I think, that at that time that Arc Daily had undue power and, and, uh, and, and let's say, 
I think people felt that we weren't necessarily taking our responsibility with that power. And I'm talking about people who wanted things to be published in a highly edited way. You know, I think that the, the issues people had with, with what we were doing at Dark Daily at the time was that we were not editing. But of course we were editing. Of course we were editing. We were making micro decisions as a team constantly and, and, and trying to subtly shape, let's say, the content that we were given or let's say mediated before it was published out into the world. And a lot of that was just about balance. And I mean, it sounds like during this period, you're establishing a network. Also, this seemed to lead quite quickly on to your involvement in, in co-curating the Nordic Pavilion. I mean, this was uh, in collaboration with David Basalto. Could you tell me what this foray out of writing for Arc Daily and into more established or more, in a way, traditional modes of curation came to be? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a little bit, uh, a little bit of a strange story. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm, I'm very aware that, that I have, let's say, skipped rungs in the ladder as I've moved through the world. But to be quite honest with you, I think I've lived up to them in a decent way. So I'm not necessarily guilty about that. The, the, the co-curation of the Nordic Pavilion at the Venice Biennale was, was a very random thing. No, it, it, the, three, um, the three museums that, that um, manage that pavilion um, of, of Sweden, Norway and Finland reached out to David Basulto and they said, do you want to curate this? You know, David hadn't curated anything before. Um, and I hadn't really curated anything, but I had a lot of friends who were curators. And, and I was sort of, let's say, mingling in this world. And I was understanding just by standing at the sidelines and looking in what this was or what this could be. And I could see, I had opinions about where it was done badly and where it was done well. Um, and David invited me into the project because I think he, he, he wanted help with it. And of course, suddenly through this process, which was essentially going from, I suppose, nothing to, to like the, at that time anyway, the most important architectural event in the world, um, I just ran and I just sort of said like, I've, I, I think it should be like this. And, and I mean, unbelievable naivety, <laughs> Matthew, like unbelievable naivety. But I, I, I don't think naivety is necessarily a bad thing. What we ended up with, of course, was, was me having, I suppose, a, a, a crash course in how to deal with institutions. And institutions, I'm talking about the different institutions that were commissioning this, the institution of the Biennale itself, how one can sort of create a, a space that is experience-driven, I think, first and foremost, rather than... Um, just trying to tell you something. I mean, I was just following an intuition that I don't think I want to tell anybody anything, really. I want them to feel something. I want them to, to come into this incredible building designed by Sverfan, probably one of the best buildings in, in the Giardini at the Biennale, a building which, by the way, no one has successfully dealt with, including me, because it's such a strong space, um, and give people an experience. So what did we do? We did an exhibition called In Therapy, and I just said, I believe that... the. But Nordic architects, Nordic architecture is, is dealing with a very strange situation where the history, um, a certain kind of 20th century history, is weighing down so much, coupled with all sorts of different um, 
problems that come with a developed society, namely bureaucracy, means that actually the, the possibilities in contemporary architecture, we're not seeing great architecture. So what if we sit down with these sort of grandparents, metaphorically, and try to understand where we're coming from and where we're going? And of course, I was waving a flag as someone who was not from these places, um, which gave me some freedom, but also, you know, gave me some criticism as well. And the main gesture, which was in collaboration with a fantastic architecture practice in Stockholm called Marge Architecta, was to create an enormous timber pyramid that was essentially somewhere between a, um, a tribune and a staircase. And for the first time, and maybe the only time in the history of that building, people could climb up and put their heads in between the lamella and stand in the ceiling of this great building. And I mean, that experience itself, I, it's the thing I'm proud of with that project. Mm. It's incredible, the images I saw. It's like this timber ziggurat. And uh, yeah, it functions not only as stairs to the ceiling or the soffit, but um, as a kind of amphitheater um, for public events. But tell me more about the title, In Therapy, which to me, having looked through and engaged with other work by you and your own writing as well, it feels to me very you. But does it? That's interesting. Tell me about the decision to title this first exhibition in therapy. What does that mean? Why is that relevant? <sighs> you're, asking a, you're asking a very interesting question, which I'm not sure I have a solid answer to. There's a couple of ways to answer that question. Number one is I think we wanted to provide a little bit of a gentle shock. Um, I don't think that titles of exhibitions are even relevant in the Biennale. I don't think people remembers what the title of an exhibition was called. No, that's not true. It's totally true. But we had <laughs> chaise long and, and rugs in the, in the room. So also the idea of, let's say, some sort of Freudian therapy was definitely metaphorically present mm. in the room. Um, I think that the, the uh, there's many answers to this. So one, I, I think that it was just about trying to get people in the door and trying to, to get people to understand the content that was in the exhibition, which was essentially the results of an open call, which was something we were asked to do by the commissioners, not something I necessarily wanted to do, um, to see that content through this lens, to sort of try to sort of create a reflective space that wasn't, that was still, you know, attractive, that was still, that was, that was rather than sort of asking you just to reflect, was sort of like trying to create some sort of minor context for reflection. I think... I think for me, like, to, I mean, maybe to respond to, 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 to your broader question about therapy, and, and I can totally see how you might be able to trace a certain uh, line from there to now in different ways. Concurrently with, with all of this process, um, you know, like I'm, I'm growing up and I'm growing up in a, I'm growing up as a, like a queer boy who came from a ridiculously heteronormative society in which I mean I, I remember completely as a kid being so frightened about about being gay because like in the 90s or 2000s like every single ad and every single film and, and everything was was just you know heteronormativity and so you know you realize very quickly that you're that you're wrong um, you feel that you're wrong and you feel that you need to prove yourself in different ways, perhaps, because you can't prove yourself in the way that is obvious. 
you can't just fit in. So you have to find another way of doing it. And I think that for me, even though I've, I suppose I've developed a much more nuanced understanding of, 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 of how you can deal with that, I've always been interested in, in you know, illuminating the world with a, with a delicate light, you know, say shining lights on things that is maybe a softer light. I, I, I'm not super into harshness. I, I'm, I'm really into this sort of idea that there are many different kinds of experiences and that we need to make space for different kinds of experiences of things. So, mm. so maybe you can argue that in therapy was the first platform that I really got to sort of say, I think this might be a good way to think about things. It's so interesting because I feel like that title for me, it opens up a door into a different way of thinking about the work you do. But as you've just explained, it's also a deeply personal theme or idea when it comes to your own self-identification, the way you are as a person in the world. And I feel like there are these two aspects of this therapeutic relationship um, that you're exploring as a curator. And one has to do with exposure or self-exposure or disclosure. And the other has to do with proximity. I just want to read um, a description you gave about what a curator does in another interview. And I have to say that this interview is given on a birding podcast. <laughs> on a what? It was like a bird watching enthusiast. Oh, birding. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah, get, get birding. Get birding. The, the biggest <laughs> bird watching podcast in the UK. <laughs> Sponsored, I was, I was shocked and surprised by Swarovski Crystals. I don't know how they're... I know, it's a good, it's a good sign. Though. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> um, you explained to the birder that a curator is someone who cares for things, who cares for ideas, people, and context, that they need to look and listen closely, and that you talked about design and how design in relation to curation, and that when we think about the world through design we start to see things more closely. And I feel like the job you've taken on in t terms of the kind of curation you do, and maybe this is more broadly applicable to the role of the curator, is to bring us very close to something that may have been overlooked and to create the circumstances for a very direct and intimate encounter with a thing or an idea. And to have that idea or thing somehow move us or shift our position in the world a bit. Yeah. And, and so to me, that's a very therapeutic scenario. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I, I mean, thank you. Thank you for that sort of observation, because I'm not sure I've made it before. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think that you know, obviously the idea of, of curation is the word curator or curatorial ideas are, are overused now and of course that puts a lot of pressure on the discipline of curatorial practice of which you know there's not many curators of of, of architecture and design in the world it's it's in comparison to art curators for example and that pressure is interesting because that pressure forces us to sort of think very carefully about what it's doing and in the context of a museum that's also very specific um, as opposed to in the context of let's say freelance curatorial work i mean in in that in that that, that um 
Birdwatching podcast, which was in relationship to Studio Asidiana's project that they did at Agdes called Utumuzvarket last year, which for that project, Studio Asidiana brought forward this idea of coexistence between birds and humans being a kind of radical way of rethinking public space. And it actually worked. I mean, I spent most of that summer cleaning bird shit off their installation. Um, with a certain kind of joy, actually. You did talk about that in the interview. That would have been interesting. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, there's a lot to there's a lot to talk about. Let's say the the acts of care that happened around Studio Sidiana's project. Um, but when we when we think about uh, when I think about um, curatorial practice, I start to think about what it means to nest in the complexity of things. Um, and I don't know where I, I don't know where I got this from. I, I think I remember writing about it once, but I sort of earlier, earlier in, in, my, in my career, I described curatorial practice as almost writing as if in capital letters. And so what I like about capital mm -hmm. letters is they're very clear, they're very accessible, um, but it's still language and it still contains all the gradations of language or the nuances of language. And I think that finding that balance in everything is, is, is really important to what I do. And sometimes I get it right, and sometimes I get it less right, and sometimes I get it completely wrong. But that ambition to not dumb things down, but create space for, for close looking, close feeling, um, through experiences, through objects, through the creation or maintenance of conversations, through um, the construction of contexts, is, is a very vague thing to say maybe, but it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's easy to do. It's easy to do if you go into it with that ambition and you sort of follow that, that thread as much as you can. Because also the thing about doing an exhibition, for example, is that you're dealing with unbelievable amounts of like outward pressures, you know, coming in a all times, whether it's money or time or other opinions, you know, you're constantly having to navigate and negotiate to arrive at something that is ultimately time-based. It's, it's, it has a duration. It's going to arrive, it's going to be, and it's going to disappear. And for me, that time before, that time during, and that time after are all equally as important. How one constructs something and, and takes on that negotiation, how it meets publics, but then also how it resonates. That's the mark of, for me anyway, the mark of doing something that may have offered something to culture. It's also, again, just to go back to this idea of disclosure or exposure, you have this other practice on the side of your curatorial work, which is writing, where the writing you do, it feeds into and somehow reappears or is extracted from the curatorial text you write, but it's woven into essays which are often profoundly personal. And one of those essays, uh, which was published last year, was actually read aloud by you on the radio station NTS. It's part of this series called Protagonist of the Erotic, yeah. and the essay was called An Island. Mm. And this is this is maybe I mean it's been published I'm assuming you're comfortable talking about it but let me know uh, if not I mean it deals with very sensitive aspects of your own biography and your experience that were spurred on by an illness and um, convalescence following a surgery 
Mm. Is this a topic we can get into? Yeah, of course. Yeah. To recall what I said, I mean... (laughs) I can can jog your memory. You're weaving together a a kind of personal narrative uh, in the aftermath of this... um, what sounds like uh, quite a scary medical experience, uh, where you're also, in a way, um, re-encountering yourself as a, this is a bit blunt, but like sexual being, and I think before that, a being who feels. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that that experience made me understand the fragility of the body in a, in which I'm very grateful to have that experience, let's say, before my body starts to fall apart, age 50 or whatever. Um, I mean, because my body will fall apart age 50, I'm really convinced. So this, this experience, which was, which was short but intense, and, and you know, it completely incapacitated me and uh, made me, I think, understand that there are two things that are important to me, the, the, the long view and the very immediate view. And that's something which I think I understood about the way I work. Like, you know, I'm, I'm quite, quite good at building concepts and I'm quite good at details, but I'm not very good at anything in between those two things. And, and this long view and the short view, what I mean by that is that overarching sort of desire to sort of get somewhere and, 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 and do something in, in broad strokes has always been part of my, of my persona. I've always been thinking in, in, in long ways, you know, also in, in speculative ways, projecting. And also that's what architecture asks you to do. No, you're just constantly, literally projecting uh, into the world. Um, and that short view is, is really about the present. And I have a lot of issues thinking about things that are too far away. It doesn't interest me. I'd much rather be very, very in the now. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit um, obsessed with, with, with immediacy and presence. And I, and I, and I really like that, um, that aspect to, to how I operate because I, I, that translates into also how I operate professionally. And, and I don't really think there's a massive dis- distinction between the two, this idea of like professional and private. I think that they are continually blending into each other and informing one another. And I think being able to acknowledge that is is a certain kind of power, actually. Um, of course, this approach to things can, can prove problematic when you're working in big project. And, you know, I can't be so immediate. Uh, I can't mm. be so mercurial. <laughs> Which, which I think is uh, a way that more than one person has described me <laughs> in the past. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, just want to go for it. Uh, do you mind if I go interject? It. I'm just conscious that we're going, we're speaking quite broadly, and I think we're already venturing into other lines of thought I want to follow, especially around Sawspot, where where I think the book opens with this statement that there is so much nowness in the now. These are the ideas that you're already starting to breach or broach. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> Both, right? <laughs> but before, before we go there, um, I want to be brought back into this moment of this particular text, and I want to be brought into this moment of... Um, of you recovering from this surgery and what sounds like possibly was a, 
a near-death experience, if not uh, a very shocking reminder of uh, one's own frailty. Mm. And then your experience on this particular island in Sweden as well. Can we, can we wander through that essay a bit? Yeah, of course we can. Of course we can. Where is it? <laughs> is it I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find it so I can wander through with a certain degree of accuracy. Okay, I mean we don't have because to. It doesn't have to the, be a close reading. It's just I want to understand uh, your experience. No, yeah. You know, bed bound. I understand. Middle of the pandemic, recovering from the surgery, and then I want to understand what brought you to Langholm and, and what compelled you to yeah. write this essay. The good news is I can't find it, so there'll be no close reading. Um, the <laughs> the reality is that my kitchen window is on the sixth floor, and it's an amazing kitchen window because it looks over the expanse of the archipelagic city of Stockholm. And Stockholm is an incredible city. Stockholm is, you know, I've I've lived in many different places. I've been to. The, I, I, there's something about the. The, the sheer fabric of Stockholm, which these granite mounds coming out of the water, the way the ice freezes over, you know, in, in, in the winter and creates these new pathways between the islands. There's something beautiful about the city. And my kitchen window was where I stood for a good six weeks, looking out at a world that I couldn't be a part of, you know, high on morphine, basically, semi-high on morphine and really unable to move. And it was really the situation that I, once I stood, you know, I really couldn't, it was an effort to sort of move back to where I was before. So I was, I spent probably for the first time in my life, time just looking and not really being bothered by the fact that I have to do something else. That there's another, there's something else that is going to distract me or pull my attention. And, you know, for, for some years now, I've been extremely interested in, in cruising culture, cruising culture as like as 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 a, a a sort of a concept cruising culture meaning when uh, it's usually to do with queer culture where people hook up in public spaces yeah i mean to be even more concrete i mean historically it's about gay men searching for sex in the city mm. that's basically mm-hmm. it and, and this stems from a long history of of illegal homosexuality and and also a certain built into it of all these ideas around danger and threat um, and pleasure. Um, and Longhorman is this island that my kitchen window looks out onto and his, has been historically, still is, sort of, less and less, one of the largest, most active cruising sites in Stockholm. Um, and I mean, and I've walked this island a, a hundred times or more, you know, from, from end to end, it's not that big. Um, and I've, I've experienced it, you know, I've, I've experienced this island in, in all of its, in all of its forms, both hidden or invisible and, and, and visible. And I think that going through a process of really understanding, uh, it was a, a real shift in understanding my body. And I think for like a, a lot of my, a lot of my life, especially as a child, you know, you go through a process of compartmentalization. You, know, you say, well, I'm a mind, I'm a brain and a voice, and then I'm a body. And for me, the, the mind and the brain and the voice, as it were, were, were more important than the body. The body was just like a vessel to carry, to carry this thing. And, and, and that, was the, that was the path I, I walked because it was probably the easiest path to walk. But at a certain point, you have to acknowledge that everything is connected. 
And, you know, for me also, like, exploring, doing years of research into ASMR, for example, teaches you that... This is where I wanted to go, yes. Yeah, that there's something that happens between mind and body that is not, like, that they are not distinct. Um, and that's actually a fairly controversial thing to, to, to talk about. I mean, I mean, I don't think it's widely understood or widely acknowledged that, that there is this kind of symbiosis. I mean, it's, it's happened more and more that, you know, we start, when we especially enter, enter into dialogues around trauma, for example, we understand or it's more commonly understood that trauma is a bodily thing. It's not just a psychological thing that muscles and parts of the brain have memories of traumas. Um, but I think that when it comes to, let's say, the fields of architecture and design, which are notoriously five decades behind any other field, the, you know, trying to argue that for a creative field or a creative discipline, I think is still relatively novel. In a way, what you're describing is, in a very personal sense, this increasing awareness of the the complex agreements between body and mind, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, and the um, the fact of the body as a as a thing that desires, yes, uh, a thing that within which longing is embedded, a thing uh, that feels, and in a way, the essay seems to be informing a sensibility that you bring to your curatorial work. Mm. Well, the timelines are a bit mixed up, no? Because the like this yeah. came af <laughs> this came after, but I mean, I I think that it is all a bit of a mess, no? It's all a bit of a everything is happening in parallel, and I think it's it, it is easy mm. to sort of like look back on near recent things and 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 draw lines, but I think it's all it's all coming out from the same slightly confused and rather sensitive mind, no? Uh, which is unfortunately mine. Like it's all coming from this kind of desire to, uh, to 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 match my curiosity with an actual output and that's an inward curiosity as much as an outward curiosity um, to to try to to open up the spaces for the conversations that I feel in a combined professional and personal capacity to be important and relevant for this moment we are in and this moment that we've been in as it were this protracted moment for the last two years has been a particularly weird one um, a particularly challenging one. And, and of course, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here, whether it is soft spot or whether it's weird sensation feels good, the exhibition, or whether it's this essay that I wrote, all happened during the last two-year period. And I think in some ways they're all part of my own attempt to, to, um, to make sense of, of what's happening. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about weird sensation feels good then. This is an exhibition that um, was put on in 2020 at Arkdes, which is the um, architecture museum in Sweden, in Stockholm. And it's about ASMR, which I'm sure most listeners are familiar with, but- You should, you should start whispering it in binaural audio. You know what I was hoping, like in a way I was fantasizing about starting this conversation with you and I listening to some ASMR together to kind of tenderize or uh, relax into discussion. But at any rate, I would, probably ask you for a recommendation and at some point in this conversation um, slip in a bit of ASMR. Oh, it's very personal though. Mm. But sure, yeah, we can do that.
Okay, well, first of all, could you just explain um, for listeners who aren't uh, aware what ASMR is and what this exhibition set out to do about it or do with it? Mm. Well, as you said, ASMR stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, which means absolutely nothing. It was a series of words coined by someone called Jennifer Allen in 2009-2010 as a way to put some kind of term to a feeling that was emerging from the internet. And there was a, a message left on steadyhealth.com on a, on a board by a user called okwhatever51838, who will never know who they were, who, as far as we know, was the first person to say, you know what, I get this feeling sometimes, and it feels like tingling on the back of my neck, and it happens when I'm focused or when someone is whispering to me or when I'm being touched softly or when I see someone popping bubble wrap and and that thread exploded and, and therefore this entire movement was was spawned and it is I would say the most important movement that the internet has actually come up with yet because what it does is it is it subverts everything that we know about the internet which is essentially about speed right whether it is the devices that we most of us hold in our hands and the bandwidth of the internet, which is ever increasing, and the platforms such as YouTube or Twitch that allow us to have audiovisual experiences, or, you know, maybe they're not experiences, maybe they're, yeah, they're experiences. Um, what ASMR does is subvert all these in favor of slowness. And it creates a space on the internet for people to really relax, to feel something in a sort of strange new framework that I think tells us a lot about how we live today, it tells us a lot about where we're going. And it's used as a form of self-medication for anxiety and insomnia. Um, and through all this, we can open up discussions into so many things about emotional labor, about the risks to, to develop societies, about um, loneliness, I think, critically. Uh, yeah, so the exhibition basically, that, that's what ASMR is and, and what Weird Sensation Feels Good tries to do. And we're in a very interesting moment right now because the exhibition was was on in 2020 in Stockholm and it will open in May in London at the Design Museum in a slightly different slightly different constellation um, expanded it's a bigger gallery in bits and pieces what the exhibition tried to do was was acknowledge it as a creative field was acknowledge it as, a, acknowledge it as part of the the international design discipline um, which as far as I'm aware is the first time anyone's tried to do it and uh, <laughs> I think we we, we, because we did it in Arcdes, which is a national museum of architecture and design, of course, the, the concept of institutionalization, which on the one hand can legitimize something, on the other hand can, can be very violent, I think was used in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an interesting way in the context of this exhibition to, to, to make space to talk about it and to sort of lift it out of the realms of taboo, which it's been in for so long. I think it's important in that context to talk about the design of the exhibition itself, which uh, was made in collaboration with, is it Eter or Eter? Eter. Eter Architects, uh, mm. Irene Stracuzzi and Postnew. And the, the I've only seen images of this, but I also watched the digital or virtual vernissage when the exhibition opened in 2020. <laughs> Um, <laughs> which was basically audience. the day that like COVID kind of really erupted in, in Europe, like outside of Italy. It was a frightening time. It was quite something then that you pulled that together on such short notice. Uh, it's a really captivating um, video. I encourage people to watch it. But 
Um, you essentially walk us through the exhibition, and there are also interviews with um, uh, academics and researchers who are studying this nascent field of ASMR. But I think the exhibition design itself is totally fascinating and involves a kind of uh, ripply um, <laughs> landscape of, of um, I don't even we know. We call how it to the sausage it. pillow. Uh, sausage pillows. There you go. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> they almost look like uh, the surface of a brain or something has been um, sp spread out over the expanse of this exhibition space. And then there are these hanging chandeliers of screens and fingers and ear speakers. And it's all incredibly, in a way, it gives me tingles just looking at the images of this exhibition. Can oh, you, really? Oh, wow. Can you talk more about... That's super nice to hear. Can you talk more about the design of the exhibition, what you're setting out to do? Yeah, I mean, for me, exhibition design, and this is also maybe coming from just my, my background now, is, that, is, is incredibly important. Incredibly important. I want to transport people into a world. I want to, to make space for them to experience something that they might never have experienced and create a unique context for them to engage with ideas and objects and, and, and all that kind of thing. And exhibition design is not easy. It really is not to get it right. And, and ITA, who are based in Riga, are, are really, really unbelievably good um, at, at understanding not only at designing, but also understanding how concepts relate to design. And this, this project had about a year of research up until the point where we started to do it. And of course, we have to acknowledge, that, I mean, Kieran, Kieran Long, who's the director here at Agdes, is his, the trust that he placed in me also. And, and um, even though exploring the kind of expanded field of design, which really does extend to the internet, is part of his mission and, and, and the mission that, that we're all trying to fulfill at this museum. Um, the trust that he placed in the project was was unique. You know, not many, not many directors would do that. Um, that allowed me to feel very kind of able to pursue a course. And, and Ita were very responsive to that. We, we held a mini, very mini invited competition for the exhibition design there. And, and through that sort of, I understood some different directions, but the direction that ITA presented and the, the direction that we followed and evolved, um, again, under all of the constraints of time and money and everything given that a pandemic was, was around the corner and although it wasn't as we were designing this, but that suddenly supply chains and travel was impossible and all that kind of stuff led to a particularly intense collaboration where in the end, as we were building this exhibition, um, Ita, Dagny and Niklas Karlis, they were unable to be in Stockholm. So, I mean, I had to stand there with FaceTime and say, all right, guys, I know I trust that you had a plan as to how this sausage pillow, one kilometer of sausage <laughs> would be laid out. But I tell you, it's harder in reality than it looks on the drawings. I was looking so at the construction drawings and it was absolutely boggling to me how it was set out because there is a repeating pattern that the images um, suggest otherwise. And of course, it's also how these behave, no? They have a certain filling and the folds. So I mean, really, you know, the team here at Arcdes and, and me and in close collaboration with Ito who were at a distance, 
sort of just wrestled this beast into being and and then suddenly the the exhibition closes immediately <laughs> because it's a pandemic um we do the we do the the virtual vernissage which was basically an hour and a half tv show which i think landed in the world at a particularly useful time because i mean all you had to do was put on some headphones go into a dark space lie on your bed and watch relax because the fear back then do you remember was just was was strange because it, no one knew what this pandemic was and, mm. and so i think that the whole topic and everything sort of landed at a, at a perfect moment where people were just seeking something that was quiet and gentle mm. but also somewhat interesting mm-hmm. um the exhibition ultimately opened and then we were able to see how people interacted with this enormous sofa with these strange works on display and it was one of the most revealing experiences of my entire career really to to have conversations with people on this vast sausage pillow to see people falling asleep i mean falling asleep in this exhibition was the greatest compliment you know and uh, i remember walking in there one morning as as i often did and seeing an elderly couple laid like, sprawled on the sausage pillow in front of an episode of bob ross's joy of painting um hand in hand asleep and i was like wow this is when an exhibition becomes a public space this is when an exhibition becomes a space where you can feel something i mean to feel vulnerable enough to fall asleep in an exhibition is is rare you know and and it's something that i will i think forever try to replicate or try to find alternatives to do to make people feel that safe in a in a in a in a room mm. that is essentially yeah public mm. um and i think eater's design you know it 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 enables that this is pointing to another question that it seems like is front of mind for you, which is, what are museums for today? You had this call for submissions. Let me just find the name of it again. Solicited proposals. Yeah, where you're asking um, what happens in an architecture exhibition? What and who is it for? What does it do and how does it do it? So you sent out these um, this call for submissions or solicited proposals from different um, thinkers, I think, in the, the, the expanded field of architecture. Um, and those essays were published or began to be published late last year in December of 2021. Can you tell me what you learned from that exercise? What kind of answers did you find to these questions? Yeah, I'm, I'm still thinking through it myself. I mean, the the, the the context of that of that collaboration with Eflux Architecture and Arcdes was connected to I think a question that we're all asking here at this institution, which is how will we make an architecture and design museum relevant across the next thirty years? Because as far as I'm concerned, they're becoming less and less relevant, and and this is a, a, a this is a a space of real urgency for for all of us in society and our acknowledgement of culture and what do we want you know architecture and design are the backgrounds to our very lives everybody has a relationship to them like an embodied relationship to architecture and design yet you know the, the kind of materials that an architecture museum holds such as plans and drawings are not in themselves particularly interesting to a broad audience it's all about the stories it's all about the context it's all about how you know, in the words of Kieran, architecture and design relate to public life. And public life is that kind of core, strange concept that's very ambiguous and vague that, that we work to here, that, we, that, that sort of allows us to think very broadly about all these questions. But solicited proposals was a way to actually say, well, if we're going to ask these questions, we need help to ask these questions. I can't answer these questions. 
I mean, I've got, I've got one perspective on, on all of them. So we invited a group of people to, to reflect on an element of the architecture exhibition, whether that was um, the seating or the duration or the interpretation or the guide or the object list or the brief, you know, all of these things that we just take as given, given formats or, or, or given ways of doing things. And so the ambition we set to, to each contributor was to try it from their perspective, to, to weave together a little narrative about this element and then try to imagine possible futures for it. Like how would the duration of an experience change in the future for the better, you know? Because that directly relates to all sorts of questions where, you know, I would love to have a museum open from lunchtime until 3 a.m. And that's rarely done, but that suddenly changes the entire experience of, of what it means to be a public space and also how you engage with it. Night visits to a museum uh, is, is an amazing idea, but it's, it's easy to think about, very hard to put into practice because it has a, a, a massive repercussions on the functioning of an institution. So it's, it's sort of like a space to open up these questions. And, and these questions, which, um, which have been answered by all these respective contributors, or at least they've, they've claimed a position towards, then allow us to think very carefully about how we might actually do that in reality. And we're nowhere, we're really working towards it. We're nowhere near yet, but I do not want museums to die. I do not want institutions to lose their relevance. Um, but if we don't start attacking these questions in a really open way and understanding how these fairly anachronistic models relate to the place in which we are right now, um, we're not going to get anywhere. And they will slowly die. They will slowly die because the, the, the experience of them doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily attractive, I think, to, to broad parts of society. And it really does feel like the exhibition design for Weird Sensation Feels Good is a kind of case in point in how to begin to alter the museum environment. Um, and, totally, yeah. And to, I mean, as you've said elsewhere, I think, offer something softer uh, or recast the museum as a place of acceptance, uh, reflection, and empathy. Yeah, precisely, precisely. I'm really, uh, do you know how, it, what do you think about that? Because I, no one agrees with me, really. Like, they agree with me in principle. But, you know, the idea of an institution swapping from this kind of space of power and top-down sort of, like, information, all that kind of stuff, like, becoming a more passive space, I think for a lot of people it's quite frightening because it loses its kind of core reason for existence. Mm -hmm. But I, I really don't believe that it does. Mm-hmm. That interpretation of this possible future for the museum and its role in public life really does resonate with me. But I do see intimations of it already in institutions like the Welcome Collection. I mean, I'm curious, mm. um, beyond other institutions, what curator is working today? Which curator is working today or inspiring you? Or are there any role models, even historically, I mean, that's, I mean, there, there are many, right? There are many for, for often very trivial reasons. Uh, I, I've, I've become more and more interested, perhaps as a result of, of being in Stockholm. I was in Stockholm for two years without moving, you know, which is a very different way of being than I'd been used to. 
in really understanding the ground you know upon which I've been standing and the particular histories of of that ground um I have a I have a very critical stance towards Swedish society as much as I fully appreciate and acknowledge that it's extremely good in many many ways um that the society that's been built here is um in many ways as good as it gets you know as far as as far as countries go right now but there are there are lots of there are lots of sacrifices that you make to to achieve a society like this and and I work for the government you know like Arctis is a government governmental body so we're very tied to to sort of the the long history here Arctis sits on an island naturally in the middle of Stockholm called Hopsholmen um that has a particularly interesting history as a as a sort of pleasure garden in the 1600s and then as a military island which was closed to civilians also at simultaneously a very popular cruising spot because where there are sailors there is gay sex and then in the 90s and 80s and 90s it became a, a sort of cultural space and one very problematic figure who was part of that movement was Pontus Hultian Pontus Hultian um was the first director of of Moderna Museet which is the Museum of Modern Art here he was also I think the first director of the Pompidou Center and sometimes when I look at what his career entailed as problematic as it was in so many ways he also understood a particularly a, he also understood how you build an institution and how you build an institution that feels like a living room and if you look back at the very old images of the institutions that he created um centering on modern music you see a space that is just alive you know that really feels part of the world it's in part of the society it's in he went on to be part of the advisory team that led to Kulturhuset which is a a big building um modernist building in the center of Stockholm uh, designed by Peter Selsing uh that was i think in many ways the precursor to the pompidou center it's a vast as i said it's a large facade which faces as one of the biggest public spaces in the center of stockholm which is all glass and on that glass facade you see all these floors and you see all the functions from the cinema to the dance theater to the art exhibitions to the library to the chess area to the children's area you see it laid out in front of you in this typically modernist way and that's exactly what the pompidou i think became conceptually um No, yeah, Pontus Hultén is is somebody who I think understood how space, architecture, concepts and experience meet. And and I sometimes do I sometimes do I think model things on 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 So I certainly model like let's say um ambitions on I think the um, the better ambitions that he had. When it comes to right now, I'm not sure I would pick anybody out in particular. I have so many ongoing conversations with people. I have I find it very difficult not to become friends with people I work with um and then that becomes a very interesting negotiation ultimately when you start working together again but I'm not but I I don't want to know somebody I don't want to know half of somebody I want to know all of them um because only then can interesting things come and and when I look at I mean for example Shumi Bose who you've interviewed before a uh, curator and teacher in London space popular who you've interviewed before who I've worked with and have a very close relationship with now and an ongoing conversation to all sorts of people that I'm around 
that are around me now in Stockholm, like Marie-Louise Richards, who is a lecturer on the decolonizing architecture course at the Royal School of Art here. These are my friends, but they're also my intellectual sparring partners. And maybe it infuriates them from time to time. I don't know, I should really ask them. But I, my intensity is, is in understanding how they see the world. My intensity is understanding how they see what I'm doing. My intensity is, is, on, is on how we can think through things in a careful way. And thinking through things in a careful way might be in a car ride from somewhere to somewhere, or it might be on a FaceTime call, or it might be over text message. Um, and you know, the people that I just mentioned there are, 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 are a group of, of many, many more that, that inspire me in very small ways. And, and I think it's, it's so difficult to, to sort of pass, or it's so difficult to sort of unravel this tapestry, you know? Like some threads are stronger than others, or some threads continue longer than others, but it's a tapestry and it sort of, it makes up a picture which then transforms itself into, into maybe not what I write, for example, but how I write. Um, mm. Maybe not what I, 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 I pursue as research or towards an exhibition, but definitely in how I do it. Mm. Um, and, 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 and I mean, yeah, I could keep on going, but you should probably interrupt me. I should. I think further to that point, this is probably the last um, question or last topic I want to cover, which is how you came to write Soft Spot. Mm. I mean, I'll just, I'll leave that question there for you to respond to, and then I'll come back in with more specific questions. But how did you come, how did you come to write that book? This, so Soft Spot was, was, a, was a very intense collaboration with, with OKRM. Um, as a sort of London-based graphic designers and cr sort of creative agents. I think they're also very difficult to sort of pin down to a, to a single discipline or practice. And it stemmed from a series of conversations that were happening just before early pandemic. And I think that none of us at that point knew what it was going to be. And we really went in circles for a long time. You know, we had moments where we didn't talk about it for a while and then we would talk about it very intensely. And even I can't really tell you how it sort of took the shape that it did. But I do think that the shape it has is very strange. The shape it has is, um, is slightly erratic, but very, I think, representative of two things. One, where my mind was across the span of a year in different moments but also how a collaboration, like the results of a collaboration between me and, and, and OKRM, which, which was very, very, I think, was a very intense experience for all of us. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's a bit vague, but it, it was very vague. Can we just try and explain the format of the book itself? I mean, it, sure. it, it reminds me in a way of work by an artist named Douglas Copeland. I'm sure you're familiar with. There are, yes, yes. There are episodes in the book, and there are chapters, and interspersed throughout are short essays, but then folded in between the essays are these declarative statements, almost like bold slogans. Mm. And mm. there is kind of grainy imagery, <laughs> photography, and there's this common thread of close-up portraits of tree trunks as well. By Max Creasy, actually. By Max Creasy. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a very it's a complex 
mixture of different communicative modes from the incredibly short form slogan to the kind of uh, personal essay. Um, mm. And the experience of reading it is not unlike the experience of being online or maybe better the experience of being within one's own head <laughs> and and I guess watching oneself think. So I've, to me, it was a really intimate experience. There's this one passage that I feel like maybe most efficiently unlocks what the book is pursuing. So you write that as time slows and stretches, my sense of self-assuredness dwindling in parallel, the more I can cherish the ways in which I and those I'm near to feel. Inklings, impressions, instincts. These are the bodies that commission the brain. They are a privilege. They guide the fragile hand that reaches out into the world in an attempt to feel and be felt. And I feel like I could be authoring those lines alongside with you as I read them in terms of trying to summarize my experience of this text or of this book project. Um, and so in a way, we're kind of in the nest <laughs> as you framed it before in this book. Yeah. <laughs> but and I, um, I, I stand by those words. I, I am, uh, God, like, I mean, I've become more scared as the years have gone by. I've become more, uh, it's not scared as in fear. It's more just mm, scared as in fragile. And, and, I, and I think that ideas are fragile. I mean, stability is, is, is hard to find. And I, and I think that yet within all that, there is this understanding of, of, of immediacy, which I think can help help um, abate those, those, those concerns. I think that there is an acknowledgement of feeling and, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you could, people could describe me as a snowflake, you know, like on the verge, like some sort of in this generational, this generational um, bridge, which was sort of arbitrarily drawn, arbitrarily drawn by whoever. But when I look at people, you know, when, 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 I, when I have exhibitions, like where cessation feels good, and I see people who are 60 years old, and I see people who are 16 years old, like I see very different expressions in the world, but I see this exact same desire, which is to feel, to feel. And, and I think being able to talk about that and, and pin that as an ambition, and then negotiate what that means, through all these different formats, like whether it's writing or, or exhibitions or just having a conversation, is is like absolutely, it's becoming more critical to, to what I think that my purpose might be um, within these fields and, and within the, the the skills that I have to offer to, to a, an enormous cultural context. And I have to say that I do see, this is not just me spouting this, you know, that I, I see institutions, I see people around the world also following these lines of, of inquiry, which makes me wonder that maybe this is just something about our time, um, the time that we live in. Maybe this is a natural progression of, 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 of where we've been. Um, 
but yeah, you know, I don't know. Curatorial practice is is not is is very collaborative, right? And writing is very lonely, or it's it's for me anyway. It creates an intense solitude, but I still pursue it. I'm I'm writing right now the sort of first piece of near future fiction that I've ever written, um, which is set actually in in northern Scandinavia and is dealing with utopias and dystopias and 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 is trying to understand where we're where we're heading and and it it's so it's so lonely to to write this kind of stuff you're literally with yourself and i think that the balance between the solitude of writing and the collaborative nature of like birthing something into the world that can be experienced is a balance that i need because i i can't do one or the other and i think that they relate to each other in between all this, like, I also just want people to have fun. Like, I want to have fun myself. Like, I want people to experience a certain kind of magic. Um, because without magic, there's pretty much nothing left, really, you know? It's like, whether it is the experience of reading a few words or the experience of walking into a room, like, I, I kind of think that if you're not, if you're not making space for a certain kind of magic, then there's no point. Um, because I, I want to have fun. I don't have enough fun, really. And I want more fun. Do you have fun? <laughs> James, this, this was a lot of fun for me. So <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it was really fun to talk to you. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to James Taylor Foster. Special thanks this week to Rory McGrath, Shumi Bose, Max Creasy, and Frederick Helsberg. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.